Exploring the Word is brought to you by Reclaiming America for Christ and the Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. This is Pastor Paul Blair. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word. Today we're going to be completing a message preached by my dear friend and co-pastor Dan Fisher on the subject, Why the Rapture? Today, Part 2. We welcome you to the radio ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We invite you to join with us for today's Exploring the Word. And that they'll be in our blood and in our, in our bodies and we'll be tracked. And there are lots of people talking about it. Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. But then there are others who are going on to say, so that's the mark of the beast. Guys, that is not the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast cannot be passed over on you accidentally or secretly. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that those who will take the mark of the beast knowingly fall to the, to the Antichrist and worship him and in so doing reject Christ. It's not some secret deceptive thing that somebody is going to be able to, to pull over on you and you wake up one morning and discover, instead I could have had a V8, I took the mark of the beast. I didn't even know that was what that was. That's not what's going to happen. But see, this is what happens when we go to seed on Bible prophecy. We're out there saying all kinds of crazy stuff. And I believe the devil then uses that to make us look like idiots. Now, he doesn't have to work very hard because some of us are really good at it. But it hurts our message, right? Now, here's another thing I want to deal with, and then we're going to look very quickly at some reasons why you ought to embrace the the doctrine of the rapture of the church. The rapture is not, in contrast to the accusations that some make toward people like me and Paul, a theory dreamed up by weak-kneed Christians who are too squeamish to suffer. The Bible teaches that Christians have and will always face persecution, persecution and suffering on this earth. Those of us who teach the rapture and are serious students of God's word do not teach it because we're, we're, we're practicing escapism. That we think we're either too good to suffer or that somehow God's not going to let Christians suffer. That is not biblical. In fact, look at these verses. John 16, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus said. Acts 14, 22, The early church said, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now, not the great tribulation, tribulations, trials and tribulations. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul warned Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Christians get sick. Christians have accidents. Christians die. Christians are persecuted. Christians lose their jobs. Christians sometimes face bankruptcy. We go through the same things in life that everybody else does. The difference is God promised to work, promises to work all of those things together for our good. And we have the strength of the Lord to get us through those. And in, in the midst of those, we're a living testimony of the goodness of God. But we still go through those things. So I don't believe in the rapture because I think the church is too good to suffer or that we just aren't going to suffer. The fact is Christians have 
are and will suffer. That's just the way it is. I don't always understand it. We all scratch our heads. Uh, I guarantee you Paul is still scratching his head wondering why he's gone through the last 14 or 16 months fighting cancer like he has. He doesn't understand it. I don't understand it. You don't understand it. Only heaven understands. Maybe in time, God will show him some of the reasons why. But the bottom line is this, my friends. That's not the reason we believe in the rapture. So why the rapture then? Why is it? Well, first of all, to restate the one thing that we, we emphasized at the end of the message last week, Christians are not the children of wrath, and the great tribulation is God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God did not appoint us to wrath. You are not appointed to have God's wrath poured out upon you because you're a believer. Now, that doesn't mean you won't be disciplined or judged by God. God's children are constantly disciplined and sometimes judged. But the wrath of God is a different kind of thing. There are biblical precedents for this. How about Noah and his family? Why, God, why didn't God just drown them too? I mean, Noah was not without sin. Well, because God was going to pour out His wrath on a wicked world and Noah and his family were not wicked. They were His children. What about Lot and his family in Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham had done some tinkering back and forth with the angel of judgment and he had worked it down from 50 to 10 righteous. He said, if there are 50, will you save the place? If there are 40, will you save the place? Finally got him down to 10. If there's just 10 righteous, will you save the place? And the angel said, if there's 10 righteous, we'll withhold judgment. There were 10 righteous. But even though there was just a handful of righteous, remember what the angel told Lot? We can't bring the judgment till you and your family are safely out of here. Why is that? Because it was the wrath of God. And Lot was a child of God. Compromised? Yes, but still a child of God. How about the Israelites when they were in Egypt and God was pouring out His wrath on Pharaoh and those wicked Egyptians and finally the final judgment of God, the miracle of what we call the Passover, but the death angel. Remember that all of the doors that had the blood on them, the death angel did what? Passed over them. Why? Because it was the wrath of God. God was judging the wicked. God's wrath did not fall on those who had the blood on their doorposts and lintels. Well, ultimately, that is a picture of the blood of Jesus. So that's the first reason that you ought to embrace or at least consider embracing the doctrine of the rapture. A second reason, the great tribulation is designed for Israel. Paul, a few weeks ago, took us to Daniel chapter 9, and we saw that God told Daniel that 490 years are given to your people. Now, remember, who were Daniel's people? The Jews, Israel, 490 years. And he said, when that time is done, it's going to seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy and bring in everlasting righteousness. Has that happened yet? Good grief, no, it hasn't happened yet. Nancy Pelosi still Speaker of the House. That hasn't happened yet. Okay, so when that 490 years is up, righteousness will reign. That hasn't happened yet. But we did see that some of that time has already reeled off. In fact, he tells Daniel that the rebuilding of Jerusalem as they go back from the captivity is going to take about 49 years. Seven of those 490 years. Then he says... Another 434 years will tick off of God's stopwatch until Jesus is crucified. 
It's like God has this stopwatch in heaven and he said, on the stopwatch is 490 years. I'm going to start it. Click. And 490 years is going to tick off. And if you do the math there, 483 years ticked off and then God did what? He hit the stopwatch. He hit the stopwatch with how many years left? Seven. Now that stopwatch has not started back yet. And I don't have time to get into it today, but that's because God was going to do a major work among the non-Jewish people, what the Bible calls Gentiles, and God's going to call the New Testament church to spread the gospel to the whole world. The Old Testament believers couldn't see that. They didn't understand that. But there is one final week or seven years that's still left. And even Daniel tells us that that seven years will be dominated by a covenant that this lawless one will make with Daniel's people and then break it three and a half years into it. Well, that's exactly what Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And he'll go into the temple and demand to be worshipped as God. All of this is about Israel. It doesn't have anything to do with the church. Now let me give you a a couple of verses that show us this. In Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7, in prophesying this terrible time that will come on Israel because of their disobedience, this seven years, this last week, Jeremiah said, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob, of course, is Israel, but he shall be saved out of it. Now, a lot of people say, well, that was the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. You're going to tell me that the the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. was the worst thing this world has ever seen? It was worse than World War I? Worse than World War II? World War I, over 10 million people died. Worse than that? Of course not. So this time that's the worst that the world has ever seen hasn't happened yet. Jesus, referring to that same period of time, called it the Great Tribulation. It's where we get our word. In fact, the Greek language makes it even more specific. It says, the tribulation, comma, the great one. Well, that adds more emphasis to it. This is not trials and tribulations. This is a specific tribulation that is the greatest of all time. In fact, Jesus says it's so terrible that such has not been since the beginning of the world and this time no, nor ever shall be afterwards. In fact, he says if it hadn't been shortened to the seven-year period of time that it's going to unfold on the earth, nobody would survive. Well, that hasn't happened yet. It's all about... God finishing His work with Israel, which brings us to the third reason you ought to embrace the concept of the rapture of the church. And that is, God will finish His work through the Jewish people after He is finished with His work through the Gentiles. You say, well, damn, that's just your opinion. No, actually, that's the opinion of the Apostle Paul. Listen to Romans chapter 11. Paul says, I say then, has God cast away His people? He's talking about Israel. Well, certainly not. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That's just another way of saying Israel. For this, my covenant with, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Ultimately, Israel is going to come around to their Messiah. Now, not every individual Jew, but Israel as a people group, as a, as a nation people. So, God's going to do this. But before He does that, 
He's going to wrap up his work through the Gentiles. You say, well, Dan, that's your opinion. No, actually, that's the opinion of Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 21, verse 24. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Right now, we are living in what the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. Here's what Paul says about this in Romans chapter 11. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is exactly what Jesus was saying in Luke 21. Paul is saying that God right now is working primarily through the non-Jewish people groups. Now, Jews can come to Christ today just like non-Jewish people can. But typically, Jewish people reject the Messiah. So God is working through the Gentile New Testament church, but the times of the Gentiles will come to an end. And that's when Romans 11, Paul says, then God is going to deal with Israel. A fourth reason you should embrace the concept of the rapture. The Antichrist cannot be revealed until the hindering force is removed. Now, the Antichrist is this lawless one who's coming who will rule the world. We can easily see how the world could be duped by what we've experienced the last three months into believing about anything if you're, a, if you're scared enough. This is one of the lessons we ought to take away from what we've experienced with COVID-19. The fear of people will cause them to surrender liberties that their ancestors fought and died for. We've done it already. Churches have voluntarily closed up and some of them won't open up till the end of summer. And yet I guarantee you those same churches will preach with passion about the need to reach the world with the gospel. So, the Antichrist, the one who will come, the world will buy his lies. He can't come though until the hindering force is taken out of the way. Now people just say, well that's the Holy Spirit. When the church is taken off the earth, the Holy Spirit's gone. Well, the Holy Spirit is not limited to the church. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters during creation. The church wasn't even here. So who is the hindering force? It's not the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. Now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in this time, meaning the Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Now you say, well, that doesn't say that's the church. No, it doesn't if you just look at that passage of Scripture. But if you pull it all together, it's obvious what he's talking about is the work of the Lord through the New Testament church. We're the ones holding back the final judgment as God fulfills His work through the Gentile people groups. Number five, another reason why you should embrace the doctrine of the rapture of the church is that Jesus said that some would actually miss the Great Tribulation. You say, what? Jesus said some would miss the Great Tribulation. And where do you find that? Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. When Jesus was talking to the church of Philadelphia, which was a real church just like Fairview is, but also represents certain churches that will exist throughout the church age up to the very time when the Lord comes for the church, Philadelphian churches are those that are all about preaching the gospel and reaching people and being obedient to God in contrast to the Laodicean church, which is lukewarm and Jesus spews them out of his mouth, right? Which, unfortunately, is beginning to dominate the landscape today, which ought to tell you we must be living close to the last days. 
Okay, but anyway, he says to these people, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which is going to come upon your region and on your city. No. He says the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Well, that's eerily reminiscent to what Jeremiah said when he said this is the worst time the world's ever seen and reminiscent of when Jesus said there's never been a time like it and there won't ever be a time like it afterwards. It's going to test the whole world. Jesus obviously, in my opinion, was not just speaking to the Christians in the first century when John wrote that, but was talking to Christians way out into the future just like other passages of Scripture do. The Bible says that God would do a great work through the Gentiles long before the Gentiles were even accepted into God's family, really. So Jesus is speaking beyond. He's saying, I will save you from that hour that's going to test the whole world. Save who? The faithful church. That's who he's going to save. The sixth reason you should embrace the concept of the rapture is that Paul taught the church would be taken out before the tribulation. Now, I don't have time to camp on this, but if you'll go and read the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, the first five verses, you'll find that Paul is trying to calm down a church that thinks they've missed the coming of the Lord. And they think they're about to enter the great tribulation. And he says, look, don't be shaken in mind. Somebody apparently had written a letter and forged Paul's name to it. You'll read that in the text. And because they thought it was from Paul, the letter said, you missed the rapture. And they probably didn't use the word rapture, but you missed it. And now you're about to see the Antichrist revealed. Obviously, they were very troubled by this. He said, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. Because the day of Christ cannot come until the hindering force, that is the church, is taken out of the way. A seventh reason you ought to embrace the doctrine of the rapture of the church is that the rapture only involves believers. The return of Jesus involves unbelievers as well. You say, well, that's just your opinion. No, that's what Scripture says. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17, a passage you've probably read many times where the Lord is going to descend. Those who are dead in Christ are going to be raised first. And then living Christians are going to be transformed right after those who had died as believers. And then we're going to be gathered where? To meet the Lord in the air. There's nothing said of the judgment of the lost there. The only thing that is mentioned is the fact that believers are gathered into the air with the Lord. Now, if you go to Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, which we do not have time to unpack here today, but you'll find that when Jesus returns to judge the world, the whole world sees it. And everybody's involved, not just Christians who are caught up in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 15. Well, so these are two different events then, because one only involves believers, and the other event involves everybody. An eighth reason why you ought to embrace the doctrine of the rapture of the church is that what comes down must first go up. What comes down must first go up. Now, that may seem to be a little bit trite, but think with me. We just read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that believers go up into the air, right? At what we call the rapture of the church. But when Jesus returns in Revelation 19 and even referred to in Revelation chapter 7, when the whole world sees Jesus, the believers come with Him called the army of the Lord. Now, how is it that we got 
into heaven, got our white robes, got saddled up and on horses, and we're returning with Jesus when we never went up to begin with. Well, there had to be a going up first, which is the rapture of the church, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the judgment seat of Christ, all of that takes place. And then believers return with the Lord seven years later at the end of the great tribulation. And we are those armies of heaven wearing white robes, which are the righteousnesses, plural, of the saints. And we rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. I mean, it just seems to me to be so obvious. So they had to go up first in order to be able to come down with the Lord. I mean, some of this to me is just obvious. We're almost done. The ninth reason you ought to embrace the doctrine of the rapture, is that the return of Christ is seen in Scripture as imminent. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could happen at any moment. You say, well, Dan, that's just something that you premillennialists use. Well, no, it's not. Listen to James, the half-brother of Jesus. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. He says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also must be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, James wrote this in the first century. What was he looking for? The return of the Lord. Did the Lord return in the first century? No. You say, well, what's God doing? Playing jokes? No. I'll tell you in just a minute why he doesn't tell us when. Peter writes the same thing in 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And yet the Lord did not return in Peter's day. John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, says the same thing. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many small a Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour, and yet the Lord didn't come in John's life either. So what is the deal here? Is God just kind of keeping a Pollock in suspense, and He just won't tell us when He's coming back, and it's just kind of hide the truth and see if you can find it? No. There is a principle taught here, and the principle is we're not to be living only for the prophetic end. We're to be making a difference for Christ here and now, and our job as believers is not to predict the end of time, but to make use of time while we're here and do what God has called us to do. I promise you, if you knew the day and the hour of your death, you wouldn't be able to live your life. Just imagine if you knew exactly when you were going to die. All you would do is mark the calendar and just sit there in dread waiting for that dreaded hour. So God doesn't tell you. Now, He knows when. He has numbered your days. But He doesn't tell you or me because my job is to live life to the fullest and be as obedient to the Lord as I can be. And then at His own time, He calls me home, which is why I'm not afraid of COVID-19. Now, it may take me out, but it won't do it without God's permission. So... The reason the Lord does not give us a date is because the church needs to function the same way. Living so that if the Lord comes today, we have the motivation to do everything that we can do, not knowing the hour in which the Lord will return, the imminent return of Christ. Then last of all, you ought to embrace embrace the doctrine of the rapture of the church because believers should be looking for Christ, not the anti-Christ. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who are you to be looking for? Well, if the church is going to be here through the great tribulation, you're looking for the Antichrist. And you know, then you could predict when the Lord's going to come back. 
Because when the Antichrist shows up, you can mark off seven years and we're there. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. And you're a fool if you try to set a date. That's because the rapture of the church is not a predictive kind of thing. Jesus said it, only the Father knows. You're to be looking for Christ who could come at any moment. I'm not looking for the Antichrist, friends. I'm not worried about the mark of the beast. I am looking for the Christ. I'm looking for Jesus to return, not the Antichrist to rise. That's what I'm looking for. The Christ who's already risen. That's who I am looking for. Now that's why in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, the Bible commands us to gather together. There's a reason why Paul and I, one of the reasons why we said we've got to get, we've got to get started back having services five weeks ago. It's not to defy anybody. It's because we're commanded to gather together. This is how we charge our batteries and, and encourage one another. And notice it says that we gather together and even so much more as you see the day approaching. We can't predict the day, but we can see the signs of the times, right? Well, let me close with this passage. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, Peter talks about when the Lord comes back. Now, this really isn't the rapture that he's talking about. He's talking about the return of Christ when he judges the whole world. But I want you to listen to what he says. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, meaning all this stuff, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent internal is literally what that word is, heat. He says, knowing that that's going to happen, how should that affect our lives? I would say radically. Radically. So my question for you is, how do these truths affect you? Are you radically affected? Or are you just yawn, kind of stretch, and say, I wonder what's for lunch? Do you realize what's at stake here? Everything. Everything. There will be many who will miss it. But that's because they've missed Christ all along. I grew up, as you know, in western Arkansas. It's a little town right over on the eastern side of Oklahoma, just right across the border named Salisaw. Some of you know where Salisaw, Oklahoma is. You may have driven through there, may have even been there. Well, there's a little town north of there, much smaller, called Aikens, Oklahoma. It's where a notorious bank robber by the name of Pretty Boy Floyd was from. Pretty Boy Floyd lived just north of Salisaw. He had put out the word to relatives that he was going to rob the bank in Salisaw. The old railroad depot is right across the street in Salisaw from the main bank in Salisaw in those days. The old depot's still there. So all the relatives gathered over at the train depot and sat down on the chairs and the benches and were going to watch as their cousin came through, robbed the bank, and cheer him on. They all got to talking and fellowshipping. Pretty boy Floyd came, robbed the bank, and left, and they missed it. They never saw it. They didn't know that he had come and robbed the bank and gone. Now, as sad as that might be, friends, what is sadder is that you miss Christ. Not just that you miss the rapture. You miss Christ. Don't do that, friends. Make sure your life is right with God and you are ready to go. He can come at any moment. We thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word and we look forward to being with you next time. 
Until then, may God bless you. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We hope that today's journey in God's Word has been a blessing to you. You can find more sermons and resources at our church's website, www.fairviewbaptistedmond.org or call 405-348-1745. Join us again each weekday for Exploring the Word from Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond.